Living on Earth relies on your generosity to broadcast each week. Please donate now at LOE.org. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The president makes action on climate change the centerpiece of his second inaugural, to the delight of some. I was really, really happy to hear him taking on the issue. You know, he will be judged harshly. You know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, if he has done nothing on the biggest threat, I think, that humanity faces, runaway catastrophic climate chaos. But the president can't count on Congress. Also, a Mexican scientist unravels the mystery of why some prairies turn to desert. Something was missing. It was mind-blogging because all the way to the horizon, there were prairie dogs and prairie dogs and prairie dogs. And then the next day, we saw badger. Badgers are very rare in Mexico. Golden eagles were also very rare in Mexico. And we saw more than 20 there in one single day. The climate and prairie dogs and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Obama has pledged to fight climate change before, but as he spoke to the nation shortly after taking the oath of office on January 21st, he made climate defense a central goal for his second term. We, the people, still believe that our obligations as Americans are not just to ourselves, but to all posterity. We will respond to the threat of climate change knowing that the failure to do so would betray our children and future generations. Some may still deny the overwhelming judgment of science, but none can avoid the devastating impact of raging fires and crippling drought and more powerful storms. The path towards sustainable energy sources will be long and sometimes difficult. But America cannot resist this transition. We must lead it. We cannot cede to other nations the technology that will power new jobs and new industries. We must claim its promise. That's how we will maintain our economic vitality and our national treasure. Our forests and waterways, our croplands and snow-capped peaks. That is how we will preserve our planet commanded to our care by God. That's what will lend meaning to the creed our fathers once declared. Van Jones served President Obama at the beginning of the first term as a special assistant for green jobs, and he's now president of the organization Rebuilding the Dream. I was really, really happy to hear him taking on the issue. You know, when you talk to this president or the administration, Climate and energy are always number three, number four, somewhere in the top five, but never actually you know, gotten around to. And I think it's going to be number one, though, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when people look back on a president who ran, especially at first, on clean energy, on green jobs, on climate solutions, and it, on the first term just did not deliver. And so I was very happy to hear him going back to the themes that he ran on originally. And I think that, frankly, when you look at Superstorm Sandy uh, hitting New Jersey and New York so hard. You look at this dust bowl forming in the middle of the country because of the drought, and you look at the wildfires that have just scorched the West. It's really impossible not to talk about climate solutions if you really want to deal with what the American people are going through. 
Now, the conventional wisdom is that the Congress is not likely to do a lot about climate in the near future. So as the head of the executive branch of the U.S. government, what can President Obama do in this new term that he has if he wants to, and I'm quoting him here, slow the rising of the oceans? Well, there are three things he can do without Congress. Number one, he can refuse to approve the Keystone Pipeline, which will let the tar sands go all around the world. The tar sands are the this big carbon bomb up there in Canada. The scientists say if we burn all that super dirty fuel, it's game over for climate. In order for the tar sands to come out of Canada, the U.S. has to approve a pipeline. He can say no to that pipeline, number one. Number two, he can be tougher on our existing coal-fired power plants, which are a real source of greenhouse gases. The NRDC and other groups are pushing for him to use his authority through the EPA, through the Clean Air Act, to cut carbon out of our existing coal-fired power plants. And number three? Well, number three, he can go to China. There is a big environmental catastrophe happening in China, not just carbon emissions, but just pollution, period. Uh, There are now protests in China from the grassroots, not just about labor conditions, but about air quality. Uh, China and the U.S. are the biggest polluters. Frankly, pollution from China is now blowing into California, where I live. They should sit down together and come up with some kind of agreement going forward. That would give him two years to build toward that summit, to do an educational role for the country. And then after the midterms, if he's got a better Congress, he would be really in a good position to move aggressively to do something about this. He will be judged harshly, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, if he has done nothing on the biggest threat, I think, that humanity faces, runaway catastrophic climate chaos. Now, the governor of Nebraska has just approved the passage of the Keystone XL pipeline through his state. How much of an environmental litmus test for uh, President Obama is the Keystone question? The Keystone pipeline is the environmental litmus test for this president, for the, the new generation, the rising generation of environmentalists in particular. This was their first big fight on the environment. It's their first big victory a little bit more than a year ago. If the president takes that victory away from them, he is going to break the hearts of an entire generation of young people who he is expecting to stay in his coalition through the midterms and and beyond. And I think he should do the right thing by them, but also, frankly, do the right thing not just by the young people today, but by their children and their grandchildren. The tar sands are the dirtiest, most dangerous fuel on earth. They should not come out of the ground. They certainly should not come through the United States. Uh, It's not just a litmus test issue. It's a leadership issue. Is he willing to to, to match his rhetoric with deeds? Uh, We'll see very soon if he is. So, in other words, if he goes ahead with the Keystone, uh, to use a colloquial, his talk at the inauguration about helping to fight climate change is just a bunch of jive? Well, uh, there's probably some uh, newer, hipper language, but probably not fit for radio. (laughs) (laughs) My view, and I think the view of a lot of people, is that there is one thing he can do. It is totally up to him and uh, Secretary of State Kerry, once he's confirmed, to make a decision that could impact the direction of the climate on this planet forever, and he should make the right decision. And it's very easy, unfortunately, to stand up and talk about America the Beautiful. It's going to take some courage to defend America's beauty from the oil spillers and the mountaintop removers and the Keystone Pipeline uh, layers and all those people. 
And that's what he is going to have to do if he wants to secure his legacy. Now, President Obama used to be your boss. Uh, he hired you at one point. Um, from what you know of him, what do you think his decision on Keystone is going to be? I think right now he would probably be inclined to approve the pipeline, especially given the setback of the Republican governor now uh, reversing course. And I think he also will listen to his base. And so I think it's a question of the base now has to step up. I think he is going to have to be persuaded on the merits, both politically, in terms of science, in terms of policy, to do the right thing. And I think at the same time I say that, I do want to stress, he is a president who listens, and he has proven to be a president who takes his base very seriously when the base gets vocal and gets insistent. That was true on immigration. It was true on marriage equality. Uh, it's been true on the Keystone Pipeline up until now. It can be true again. Van Jones is founder and president of Rebuild the Dream and a commentator for CNN. Thanks so much, Van. Thank you very much, sir. Now, in American political speechmaking, God is rarely mentioned beyond the almost obligatory God bless America at the conclusion. But as he spoke in front of the Capitol, President Obama invoked a divine commandment to preserve our planet. So we asked the Reverend Richard Sizick, president of the New Evangelical Partnership for the Common Good and former vice president of the National Association of Evangelicals, to talk with us about how the president's religious rhetoric fits into climate change and politics. Reverend Sizick, welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, Steve. So why do you think President Obama decided to tie religion and climate change together in his second inaugural speech? Because he needs to make that connection, in my estimation. There is a contingent of denialists, denialists in the religious community who push back against this. And so actually putting it in the God context makes a whole lot of sense for the president. So why do evangelicals see climate change as their issue? We believe God said to care for the earth. From the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we know that God says, first of all, care for it, protect it, till it. And then all the way in the last book, he says, I will destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, that's an imperative. So how widespread would you say is evangelical support for action on climate change now? Some of us have been speaking about this for a decade. And while most evangelicals, I think, recognize the priority of taking action, they don't always agree with the methodology of doing it. We saw that over the cap and trade debate a few years ago. But over the general challenge of addressing this issue of the environment and of climate change, I think you'd get probably three quarters of all evangelicals saying, yes, we should do that. So when you say three quarters of uh, evangelicals in this country generally would support action for climate change, how many folks are we talking about here? Well, evangelicals are one quarter of the adult voting population of America. So if you count children, <laughs> then you're talking about one third of America. So you're really up to, if you count everyone, 100 million people, because we are a nation of now more than 300 million people. So you're talking about a huge swath of the American public. So tell me, to date, how much have uh, evangelicals involved themselves in the politics of climate change? A lot of evangelical leaders were very involved in the cap-and-trade debate back in 2010, and we know that we now face a challenge that's even worse, last year being the warmest year ever, 
And we still have a Republican Party that's pushing back and is resisting. We know that Congress that was elected in 2010 included at least 80 to 100 House members in the Republican Party who are to one degree or another resisting the president on climate change action. So the Republican evangelicals are the ones that really need to join this. That's why voices among evangelicals such as mine, frankly, are really important. How much do you think evangelicals are going to push their usually Republican congressmen for more political progress on climate change in these next four years? I think you're going to find thousands, tens of thousands who are doing that. Some of us are even willing to risk arrest through civil disobedience. We were at the White House just a week ago. The Secret Service wouldn't arrest us, to be quite frank. They didn't want to do so right before the inaugural. But there are those leaders within our movement who want to raise this issue as a prioritized issue, something that we either succeed on or don't in this administration as a test sign of, well, the whole success of the administration. That's how important it is to us. You were at the White House. What was going on at the White House? We had a pray-in, and we had an interfaith gathering. It's the Interfaith uh, Action on Climate Change Movement, and we'll be back, joined by others uh, led by Bill McKibben and the 350 Movement on February 17th. That's President's Day. We did it last week because it was Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, and he, of all people, is an example to the nation of civil disobedience. And so, of all things, praying at the White House, getting yourself arrested— but we're not going to step back. We're going to continue to raise this issue before the American public. Well, praying and sitting in and getting arrested sounds like the civil rights movement to me. It is. I have called this, and African-American leaders is, have seconded it, that this is the uh, civil rights issue of the 21st century. See, not just for blacks and other minorities here in America, but for the people around the globe, the tens of millions who are being impacted already by climate change. And so this isn't something that might happen. It already is. And if we are not willing, I say, as religious leaders to risk arrest at the White House for praying, then how do we ever expect the rest of the public to listen to us. So churches, of course, have a powerful ability to organize and motivate people. What ways do you think that they plan to take action on climate change outside of the political spectrum? We know that individuals have to change the way they live. But in addition, our churches have to change. That may mean that they adopt the Energy Star programs to reduce energy. And we know churches are doing that already. So there are many different levels other than the political here in Washington in which people need to act. Now, it may be that the president chooses to use his executive power to push action this time around, knowing what happened to cap and trade. Well, then, well and good. We'll support him. We'll support the EPA. However it happens, you have to have political push that accompanies the other individual and community acts. Of course, you're a leading evangelical. What do you say to atheists about this? We need them as much as they need us. We, the people of America, means everybody. It means increasingly the so-called nuns, that is, those who profess no faith, which are now 20 percent, according to the most recent Pew polls. And we need them as much as they need us together to do this. And so while I think that this is a uniquely religious challenge, they would say it's a uniquely human challenge. I would say absolutely, you're right. So we're all in this together and we have to do it together. Richard Sizek is president of the New Evangelical Partnership for the Common Good. Thank you so much, Rich. My pleasure, Steve. 
For more reaction to the president's promise on climate change, including the views of Fred Krupp, the head of the Environmental Defense Fund, head on over to our website. It's LOE.org. Just ahead, Quicksilver has finally met its international match. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Mercury, or Quicksilver, is one of the strangest heavy metals. It's a shiny liquid at room temperature, and ancient alchemists were intrigued by its ability to dissolve other metals, including gold and silver, but not iron. But the ancients didn't understand how toxic mercury is, especially to the brain and kidneys. And even fairly recently, it was widely used in medicine, including thermometers, dental fillings, and vaccines. It's also abundant in coal. And with coal-burning power plants on the rise, along with mercury-based gold mining, there are now dangerous levels of mercury pollution worldwide. That's according to David Evers, executive director of the Biodiversity Research Institute, who spoke to us from Geneva. Mr. Evers and his colleagues recently tested mercury levels around the world and produced a report called Global Mercury Hotspots. We found mercury to be very ubiquitous in the environment. We found it in marine ecosystems and freshwater ecosystems. We found it elevated levels in the northern hemisphere as well as the southern hemisphere. So that was the interesting finding from this is that wherever we looked, we found mercury to be quite elevated. Some of the places that we found especially elevated are in eastern Asia in India and China in particular, as well as Europe in the Mediterranean Sea and parts of South America. What's the source of all this mercury in the environment worldwide? I think there's two categories. 32% of the emissions are from small-scale gold mining. So that's the use of mercury to amalgamate with gold while you're in the field and to burn that mercury off so you have gold left on the bottom of your pan. That burning of that mercury and release into the air by 20 or more million people is what's really adding to that mercury emissions uh, into the global pool. And the second piece is the coal-fired power plants. So the burning of coal, in some ways, you're burning in an instant potentially thousands of years of mercury that's been deposited in that piece of coal by nature. So those are the two sources of mercury that are probably most problematic at a global level. In the U.S., of course, there are not a whole lot of people practicing small-scale uh, gold mining. So is it safe to say that most of our exposure here in the U.S. Is to mercury is coming from fish? And could you please then explain that mechanism of exposure? Sure. The exposure for an average person in the U.S. is primarily through uh, methylmercury in fish. It's so the larger organisms that live long, that are on the top of that food web, that are most problematic. <clears throat> and a lot of times you'll see in the newspaper or wherever, you'll hear about tuna and swordfish. And it's very true. Those are species that are long-lived and um, are on top of that food web that carry enough methylmercury in their bodies. And if we eat them regularly, then that can increase the mercury levels in our own bodies to troublesome levels. So if someone's concerned about uh, fish that has mercury in it, what should one do? Uh, is there a difference between wild-caught and farm-raised, a difference between the ocean and freshwater? First of all, fish is a very good resource for us to use, and we have to be smart about our choices and our picks. Generally, farm-raised fish are lower mercury than wild fish, and some fish have higher mercury levels in their bodies, but they may have very good omega-3 fatty acid levels in their body. So it, sometimes there could be trade-offs, 
in choosing which fish you want. If you want to eat fish low in mercury and high in omega-3, salmon and um, herring are very good for you. And what about freshwater versus the ocean? Both sort of ecosystems, marine and freshwater, have the ability to methylate mercury and get up in the food web where it can cause some, some harm to us. And if we look at species of fish that we commonly eat in the Great Lakes region, for example, such as pike or walleye or bass, those are fish species that can commonly get over one part per million, which is, which is fairly high. You look closely at 14 different countries for mercury exposure. What was the percentage of people that had uh, concerning levels of mercury that you found in their hair? In those 14 countries that we examined, we found that uh, 84% of the mercury in uh, fish were over our threshold level that we used of uh, 0.22 parts per million. That's equivalent to one six ounce fish meal per month. And we also found in the hair samples of people uh, around the world in these 14 countries that 82% of the hair samples exceeded the EPA's reference dose of one part per million. Now, last year in 2012, uh, that is, the U.S. Uh, EPA promulgated the mercury and air toxic standards, which will remove 90% of mercury from coal-fired power plants in the U.S. Uh, over the next couple of years. So we're making good progress in this country, but China and India is pretty busy with coal-fired power plants. How freely does mercury travel around the world, and what kind of emissions of mercury are we headed for if these uh, new power plants in Asia continue to grow? The U.S. has really pulled together, I think, a very good rule, and I think that will uh, be successful in removing 90% or more of mercury from the emissions from coal-fired power plants, and I think that can be done quite quickly. Probably a bigger looming problem is the mercury that's getting up into the upper atmosphere, into that global pool. And some of the key sources for that mercury in the global pool are China and India and coal-fired power plants. And so once that mercury is up into that global pool, it does move over across the northern hemisphere in North America, and it does deposit in North America. How much that will impact the U.S. and Canada is still something that a lot of modelers are looking at, and a lot of people are trying to better understand. But I'll mention that a, a study that I had in the Great Lakes, we found that there was an uptick in the last decade of mercury in different species of fish, and birds and other organisms. So I think it is something that we need to keep in our mind that even though we do clean up our backyard, there is more work to be done. David Evers is executive director of the Biodiversity Research Institute. Thanks so much for speaking to us from Geneva. You betcha, Steve. Thanks for having us show. Thank you. So in the face of rising concern about mercury pollution, there is some good news. On January 19th, Representatives from 147 nations meeting in Geneva finally wrapped up work on an international agreement to reduce mercury emissions into the environment. The treaty is officially known as the Minamata Convention on Mercury. It's named for the Japanese city where a mercury-based chemical waste disaster took the lives of almost 2,000 people over the course of three decades, starting in the 1930s. David Lennett is a senior attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council, which participated in the negotiations. It was tedious. We worked continuously around the clock for six consecutive days. But I think there was a collective sense that we really wanted to get this done. This was the fifth of five negotiation sessions. We were in a situation where we had to finish or fail. First, can you tell me what came out of the meeting in terms of gold mining? At the country level, 
it requires governments to develop and implement national action plans to reduce the use of mercury. And these plans will focus on prohibiting the worst practices, the ones that really either waste mercury or cause serious exposures to people involved in mining and their families. At the global level, the treaty also prevents certain supplies of mercury to go to small-scale gold mining. Mercury from primary mining of mercury and mercury from chlorine plants that are closing where large quantities of mercury remain cannot be resold for small-scale gold mining purposes on the marketplace. And therefore, we are starting to send the appropriate market signal to miners by reducing the availability of mercury and making it more expensive. Now, what about coal-fired power plants? There's a mandatory scheme created for both new and existing sources. The new facilities have to meet best available techniques, best environmental practice requirements. With respect to existing facilities, the treaty provisions are more lax. First of all, there's up to 10 years before uh, requirements or controls have to be applied to existing facilities. And then the menu of options available to governments to regulate these facilities is more, quote, flexible. And therefore, depending on the regime that governments choose and how aggressive they want to be in setting limits on these facilities will determine how much reductions we get. What about China and India? These are places that are building a lot of coal-fired power plants. How likely is it that they're going to want to ratify this treaty? China already has emission controls on new and existing coal-fired power plants. They will need to do additional controls on other sources, but they're already moving. And domestically, they have a special five-year plan, which actually mandates reductions in emissions of five heavy metals, including mercury. So the treaty is very consistent with their domestic policy framework. India? India's got a lot of power plants on the drawing board, and I have to assume that once the emissions language was ultimately agreed to, that they have every intent of ratifying the treaty. For India, I think access to financial and technical assistance will be important, and the best way for them to get it is to be a party to the convention. What was the position of the United States at these talks, and how likely is it that the U.S. will readily sign on to the Finnish treaty? I think it's likely the U.S. will try to ratify this treaty because their negotiating position was premised on the fact that they could ratify this treaty without any new laws passed by Congress. So the treaty, in some respects, contains provisions which would allow them to do this. Now that this treaty is all done, uh, what's the time frame for it to actually take effect? The countries will meet again in Japan in October and sign the treaty. Once those signatures happen, we enter into a ratification period, and it requires 50 country ratifications before the treaty can come into force. So we're looking at something like the 2016-2017 time period before the treaty actually comes into force. There are a number of activists who say that this treaty really is, well, it's rather weak. What's your opinion? I think there are strong parts of this treaty and there are weak parts of this treaty. 
it's a good start. We're going to need to make improvements down the road to make it better. There's enough in this treaty to be aggressive, but there's also wiggle room to not do so much. And we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. But the world's better off having this document than not having it. David Leonard is a senior attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks so much for taking this time with us today. You're welcome. My pleasure. January 27th sees the first full moon of 2013, called the Wolf Moon by Native Americans. But in our bird note today, Mary McCann has a tale of an encounter with a different creature of the night. Winter grips the land and dawn comes late. Our house sits at the edge of a field of grasses that are limp and broken, tunneled through by voles. I awake as two barred owls fly in tandem low by my windows, swift dark shapes against the gray and brooding light. How close they are, banking at the corner of the house, then a loud and mighty smack. I find one owl lying on the floor of the porch, upside down beneath a window, a heap of feathers, one wing protruding, barely breathing. Shall I cover this bird with a blanket, put it in a box and keep it warm? Has it broken a wing, cracked its beak? Or shall I keep my distance so as not to frighten it further? I decide to hold still and watch. Minutes pass. Then the owl rights itself and moves its head. Our eyes lock. Dazed, it sits quietly, turning its head from time to time. More minutes pass. I leave to get my binoculars to study it more closely. When I return, it's gone. It's flown away. Tonight, temperatures will plunge and a winter moon will illuminate the new snow. I'm Mary McCann. To see some photos of the barred owl, swoop on down to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, some bats in the south are behaving well, batty. Why this may not be good news for farmers is just ahead on Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Nearly three years after the BP Deepwater Horizon well gushed nearly five million barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico, there are still plenty of unanswered questions. And that is why more than a thousand scientists and government officials recently gathered in New Orleans for progress reports on the extensive research that's being done on this largest oil spill in U.S. history. We called Mark Schlefstein, a staff reporter for NOLA.com of the Times-Picayune in New Orleans, for an update. We started by asking what the research shows about the 2 million gallons of toxic chemical dispersants that were used to break up the oil spewing into the Gulf. There's new research that does show that the combination of dispersant and oil is more toxic than either the dispersant or the oil on their own. 
several of the papers did get into questions about both the efficacy of using that as a treatment method. There are real questions about whether or not that really was the reason the oil turned into tiny droplets. There's now uh, research that says it might very well have just been the fact that the warm oil hit very cold water at large pressures from being a mile below the surface, and that caused it to turn into the tiny droplets even without the use of the dispersant. But what kinds of long-term effects, we're still waiting to see what happens with that. Tell me about the seafood. Nearly three years after the spill, what's being found when it comes to the safety and palatability of uh, Gulf seafood? Well, that obviously is a key question that keeps popping up. There were uh, a couple of people at public hearing that was held as part of this that were saying, you know, we just don't trust the Food and Drug Administration. We know what shrimp do, and shrimp are moving through oily areas that still have oil, like in what's called Bay Jimmy. And those shrimp, you know, they don't just stop. They go out and somebody can catch them further out. The Food and Drug Administration is sticking to its guns. An official at the conference uh, made it clear that none of the samples that they have taken of seafood that is on its way to market has shown any problems. Mark, tell me about the people who live in the Gulf. I know there's been a lot of research on the health of residents and folks who were involved in the cleanup. Uh, Generally, what have the findings been so far? Well, even two years after the spill, people are still dealing with a variety of mental health issues, and that that seems to be the most significant problem that's been discussed here. There also are reports of skin problems, people still having problems with breathing issues, coughing, those kinds of things, and headaches. A much larger study of people who worked in cleaning up the spill, which um, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health has started. They have found biomarkers uh, two years after the spill that are matching the oil from the BP well, still in the bodies of people who worked cleaning up the spill. What are the socioeconomic effects of the spill on the Gulf region as a whole, do you think? It really is a, a range of things. When you look at Alabama and Florida especially, it really destroyed their tourism business uh, with the beaches. They're coming back now. Uh, there was a significant effort by BP to clean those beaches. Basically, they washed the sand or, or sifted it to get out all the particles. When you get into the Mississippi Gulf Coast and Louisiana especially, you end up with more oil in wetland areas. There's quite a few individual locations having problems getting rid of the remaining oil. Whenever there's a storm, you end up getting new pieces of hardened oil coming to the surface or washing around. You can dig down a foot and you end up with a liquid material that is uh, weathered oil, but it's still oil. Now, what do the research needs to be done here? What are we missing from the body of knowledge about this uh, horrific oil spill? There are real concerns about things like porpoises, where there were many deaths over the last couple of years. There are concerns about sperm whales, which uh, actually tend to feed about 20 miles away from the oil spill site. The other things that people are are looking for are answers about birds, especially uh, shorebirds and birds that fly over the Gulf and what long-term effects there may be for them. Uh, Mark, tell me, what's the latest with the legal settlements from BP and Transocean? 
so far, we've got two uh, plea agreements, one from BP and one from Transocean for criminal charges. BP has agreed to pay $4.5 billion to deal with both Clean Water Act criminal issues and Securities and Exchange Commission issues. Transocean has uh, agreed to about $1.4 billion. Uh, so that part's done. BP has entered into a settlement agreement with private claimants. And uh, that settlement agreement basically is expected to result in a minimum payment of uh, $8.7 billion that would pay for medical, economic, and fishing claims. And then you've got the natural resource damage assessment process, and the estimates of that are as much as another $20 billion. There's a lot of uh, speculation that there will be a settlement before the first part of this legal process goes to trial, which is supposed to be on February 25th. But um, at the moment, the negotiations over that potential settlement seem to be at a standstill. Mark Schlefstein is a reporter for NOLA.com, the Times-Picayune in New Orleans. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. Normally, bats hibernate through the cold winter months. But this winter, visitors to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in North Carolina have seen bats out and about. Scientists haven't confirmed the cause of this strange behavior, but the primary suspect is the devastating bat disease, white nose syndrome. Joining us now to discuss the news is Katie Gillis, Imperiled Species Coordinator at Bat Conservation International in Austin, Texas. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So, Katie, tell us, what kinds of behavior are they seeing in these Smoky Mountain bats? The bats should be underground, nestled in their caves, uh, sleeping away the cold winter months. Unfortunately, they've been seeing some very erratic behavior, which involves bats flying around, up and down the trails, up around all of the buildings. And, and I think they've even had a bat fly into a human being. And this, this is behavior that's usually indicative of a sick bat. So what do scientists think is causing this behavior? Well, what they think is causing it is a disease known as white-nose syndrome. And this is a new disease here in North America that's only been on the landscape for about the past six years. It is a fungal infection. It's a really aggressive fungus. Uh, it was recently named Geomyces destructans because it is a very destructive fungus that invades the bat's wings and nose and ears. They're, they're really thin dermal tissue. And uh, the fungus goes in and basically breaks down that tissue. And this is very irritating and disruptive to the bats. The bats' immune systems are suppressed in the wintertime, and they're, they're in a deep state of torpor. So their breathing is low, their heart rate is low, and their immune system is, is very unresponsive. This causes them, this irritation and disruption causes them to wake up repeatedly through the winter months. This is very costly to them. Waking up uh, uses critical fat reserves. And what happens is they are dehydrated, they're undernourished, they're malnourished, and, and they leave their caves or their mines, wherever they're hibernating, in search of food and water. And it's, it's very harsh for them out in the winter in that type of condition, and they end up dying. Now, what bat species are affected? 
Right now, we have nine species of bats that are confirmed with either the disease or the fungus, and almost all of those species are seeing high fatality rates. The endangered gray bat just uh, earlier this year was confirmed with the disease. There's about a one to three year latency period when the disease is first documented before serious fatalities start to occur. So uh, we haven't seen any fatalities from gray bats yet. We may start to see those this winter, though. The endangered Indiana bat has also been confirmed with the disease, and we are seeing significant fatalities there. The little brown bat, which was once the most common bat in North America, is seeing such significant population declines that it's been petitioned for listing under the Endangered Species Act. Describe the current extent of the white nose epidemic for us. Where did it begin and how far has it spread? White nose was first discovered in a cave system in upstate New York back in 2006, 2007, and it has spread voraciously from there. It currently occurs in 19 states and four Canadian provinces. It's as far south uh, as northern Alabama and as far west as uh, eastern Missouri. The fungus that causes it has also been confirmed in Iowa and Oklahoma, but the disease itself has not been confirmed in those states. Where did this fungus come from? Well, the fungus came from Europe. It traveled over here from Europe, a single point source of it, and then has expanded from there. So how are bat populations doing nationally here in the U.S.? I'm afraid they're faring terribly here in the U.S. Many, many sites are seeing up to 99% fatalities there. So these are sites that... Wait, you you said 99%? That sounds like extinction. Yes, we, we are witnessing what may very well be a significant extinction event, something that, that our generation has never encountered before. And it's, it's terrible. It's terrible to witness. Um, I mean, there are biologists that go to these caves year after year to monitor and count the bats and see how the bat populations are doing. And, and they're walking into these caves that used to have 100,000 bats in it, and, and they're seeing just, you know, a handful of them now. For many people, bats are seen as pests. Why should we be so worried about their decline? Ecologically, bats are the primary predator for night-flying insects. And, you know, we, we can estimate that a single bat can consume four to eight grams of insects through the course of a night. And we don't really know, you know, what the loss of millions of bats on the landscape is going to mean ecologically. We can't really fathom that ripple effect. But, you know, because they are such significant controllers of these insect pests, they also impart some significant economic benefits to people. There was a a paper that came out in 2011 in Science that looked at the math on this. And and so, like I said, if a single bat can consume up to eight grams of insects each night, that means that, you know, millions of bats, right now they they estimate that at least 5.7 million bats have been killed from white nose. So so 5.7 million bats can consume 7,500 metric tons of insects annually. And those insects are currently not being consumed if we've lost 5.7 million bats on the landscape. And these are insects that we don't particularly like, I gather. Well, there's, there's you know, variety in a bat's diet, but certainly um, it's well documented that, that bats consume agricultural pests. And uh, not having them could be real detrimental to our agricultural ecosystems. And the same paper in Science that came out in 2011 estimates that ecological services of bats 
in agricultural services uh, impart a $23 billion benefit to U.S. farmers every single year. So that's more than the farm subsidy programs for many crops is what you're saying. Yeah, it's, it's quite a lot. Katie Gillis is the Imperiled Species Coordinator at Bat Conservation International in Austin, Texas. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Thank you for having me. Life on our planet is incalculably diverse, with organisms that have evolved to fill every available habitat. But ecosystems are interdependent, and if you remove a species, you can upset the whole balance. Today, reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro brings news of one particular animal and its vital role in Mexico's prairie. Gerardo Ceballos is only 54, but he feels like he's racing against a clock. I don't have so many years left. Ceballos is refusing to let his time run out before restoring a special place in his native Mexico. Our story actually starts well before Ceballos was born, back in the 1800s, when cattle ranching was surging through the prairies of North America, from Manitoba, Canada, all the way down to Chihuahua in Mexico. And this is where the real heroes of our story come in, though at the time they were no heroes to the cattle industry. I'm talking about Sonomus ludovicianus, or black-tailed prairie dogs. Prairie dogs are really nice animals. They are the size of a relatively large cat. They're a kind of squirrel that can stand on two legs to survey the grasslands for predators. And prairie dogs thrived in North America. Probably 30 billion prairie dogs used to live in those grasslands. But ranchers came to believe that prairie dogs were competing with their cattle for grass and that cows and horses were breaking their legs by stepping into the prairie dog burrows. Opinions are divided on just how serious these problems were, but many ranchers were convinced, and with support from the U.S. government, they launched an all-out war on the prairie dogs. One weapon of choice was a kind of nerve toxin. It's a poison that will produce convulsions, a failure of the lungs and the heart. It's a really nasty thing. Tablets of this stuff were tossed down into the burrows where they produced a toxic vapor that killed everything in its wake. We're talking about probably billions of prey dogs. Billions that were killed by this toxin? By poisoning and then by the advance of agriculture. It has been one of the most dramatic, drastic exterminations of an animal by humans. Within 50 to 60 years, prairie dogs were eradicated from 98% of the area they used to call home, from 30 billion animals to one or two million. Without prairie dogs, the prairies transformed. In Mexico, the desert moved in, thanks to a shrub called mesquite. It pushes a deep root into the earth, sucking up water, and it attracts small animals that devour the grasses ringing the mesquite. Prairie dogs can't stand the plant. It blocks their view of the horizon where a predator might be lurking. So they do whatever they can to get rid of it. They chew up the roots, they suck on the stems, they run around like little gardeners, keeping the desert at bay. So with very few prairie dogs left, the mesquite helped create desert scrubland until there was little grassy prairie remaining. And with the arrival of the desert, you lose the ability of this landscape to maintain wildlife and plants, but also the scrubland is no good for cattle. So the land no longer supported the very ranching it was altered for. 
Let's fast forward now to the summer of 1987, when Ceballos was in the middle of his doctorate in Arizona. He and his wife were driving back to Mexico through what used to be the grasslands in Chihuahua, an area he'd never visited before. It was pretty much all desert, but then one day... We were not prepared mentally to see what we saw. Grasslands waving in the wind. This area had been spared. It was mind-blogging because all the way to the horizon, there were prairie dogs and prairie dogs and prairie dogs. And then the next day, we saw badger. Badgers are very rare in Mexico. Golden eagles were also very rare in Mexico. And we saw more than 20 there in one single day. It hit me immediately, the idea that prairie dogs should have some role. Some role in making the prairie possible. In the last 20 years, as an ecologist at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, Ceballos has shown that prairie dogs are a keystone species. That is, everything in the grassland ecosystem depends on them. Their burrows provide shelter for small mammals. Predators like coyotes and hawks feed on prairie dogs. These days, Ceballos is resuscitating the prairies by reintroducing the prairie dogs. Within one year, they destroy most of the mosquitoes. He's also reintroducing black-footed ferrets, a species that hasn't been in Mexico for at least 100 years, pronghorn antelopes, bighorn sheep, wolves, even bison, which he's getting from the U.S. He's partnered with environmental groups and the government to create a reserve that protects these species and that offers local people ways to benefit economically from the grassland. A good scientist has to do good research, but then has to translate it into action. There is no way that we can continue just being like historians, recording all the things that we're losing, instead of becoming actors. Now, my main objective in life is to save as many species of plants and animals as I can. Which is why, even at 54, Ceballos feels he doesn't have a moment to waste. He has a legacy to leave his country. For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro. Our story on prairie dogs is part of the series One Species at a Time, produced by Atlantic Public Media with support from the Encyclopedia of Life. To see some photos, follow the trail to our website, LOE.org, or check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. On the next Living on Earth, NASA has come up with an intriguing way to deal with those things you can't easily recycle. The plastic that's in there melts and encapsulates the waste, and what you have is kind of a hard plastic tile with uh, most of the other waste materials embedded inside of it. Space trash into mission treasure. That's next time on Living on Earth. Produced by the World Media Foundation, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Annie Sneed, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at justeatorganic.com.
www.goforward.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.